Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Hi, Reimagining Love listeners. I have a special announcement. The brand new Reimagining Love Workbook, Volume 1, is now on sale on my website. You know, when I set out to create this podcast, I knew that I wanted the lessons and the insights from the episodes to feel tangible and immediately applicable to you and your relationships. As a couples therapist, I've seen time and time again that improving your relationships and your relationship with yourself takes effort and intention and time. We need strategies, we need practices that we can play with, as well as structured spaces to reflect. And sometimes the best way to do this is to put pen to paper, to see what's going on inside of our minds and inside of our hearts. So I decided that I would create companion worksheets for all of the solo deep dive episodes of Reimagining Love. These worksheets contain tables to fill out, relational self-awareness questions to answer, and reflection exercises, all tied to the topic of the episode. And these worksheets have been available to listeners through my newsletter as the corresponding episodes have aired. And now I've updated all of them and we've compiled them into this downloadable, easy to use workbook so that you can conveniently access them all in one place. And at the end of the workbook, you're going to find a glossary of the therapeutic terms that I frequently use, as well as a list of all the podcast episodes thus far organized by topic in case you're seeking support in a particular area at a particular moment. So if you're ready to dive deeper into your relational self-awareness work, click the link in the show notes or head to dralexandrasolomoncom slash RL Workbook to purchase this amazing bundle of resources, which you can use individually or with your partner. Welcome to week one of our brand new solo episode series. 
I'm really glad that you're here. This month on Reimagining Love, we are focusing on early stage dating and we're launching a juicy three-part series. I'm really excited. You know, despite the fact that I am fast approaching our 25-year wedding anniversary, I love talking about dating. I am the one cheering the loudest for all of you who are searching for love. I always have and I always will because dating and relational self-awareness go together like chocolate and peanut butter. So let me tee up this series. Today is part one and it's called Why You're Frustrated with Dating Apps. Next week is part two which is called 12 Strategies for Swiping with Relational Self-Awareness. And then the following week is week three, part three, how to bring relational self-awareness to a first date. So we're starting things off here in part one by having a frank and hopefully validating discussion about one of so many technologies that have redefined our modern social landscape. And that is dating apps. This episode is not about whether dating apps are good or bad for society. It's not about whether they make it easier or more difficult to find potential partners. And it's certainly not about how dating apps are designed. I am not your gal for that. However, those are all fascinating conversations that are worth having. And if you're interested in hearing about some of those topics, I urge you to check out a recent episode of NPR's 1A that I was featured on alongside the hosts of a new podcast that's called Land of the Giants, Sanjita. Singh Kurtz and Lakshmi Rangarajan. And you can find that program linked in our show notes. My goal with this episode, however, is to help you improve your relationship with these apps if you choose to use them. And I want to talk to you about what it is about dating apps that evokes anxiety and frustration, and then how to really start to think about them as a tool, as one of many spaces in your life where you could potentially connect with an interesting human being, rather than feeling trapped in what feels like an endless game of swiping that leads nowhere. I think it's especially important that we talk about this right now, because I don't know about you, but I feel like I've been noticing more and more conversations about how burnt out daters are feeling on these apps in like the last year or so. So I want to make sure that I validate this sentiment because in some ways, the design of these apps is conducive to those feelings of overwhelm and intangibility. And that is not your fault. You know that I'm really here for whenever there's a risk of personalizing something that is structural, I want to make sure that I call that out. So I hope to empower you to take back your agency and reimagine, wink, wink, the way that you connect and interact on these apps. So first, let's back up a bit. How did we get here? In some ways, making use of dating apps is not at all significant because people who are looking for love have always had an intermediary of some kind. Historically, and in many parts of the world today, family members arrange marriages for young adult children, right? They are the intermediary. And historically, and in many parts of the world today, matchmakers have set the community's young people up with each other. And then 
years ago, people who were looking for love would place classified ads in newspapers, right? The newspaper itself was the intermediary. And then with the creation of the World Wide Web, dating websites, you know, soon followed and sort of replaced newspapers. And then, of course, today, it's dating apps that have become the high-tech intermediary, the high-tech version of the community's matchmaker. I want to give you a little timeline and a few fun facts about online dating, just to contextualize us a little bit more and to, bottom line, remind you that if you have a dating app or two or three or four on your phone, you are doing something that is revolutionary and brand new in the larger context of human history. Okay, so listen to this. 1995, the first website was Match.com and it went live in 1995. 1997, JDate, the Jewish dating website, was created. 1998, the movie You've Got Mail, starring Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, was the first movie to really put online dating sort of on the map, so to speak. It wasn't until 2000 that eHarmony was launched. And then 2007 is when smartphones hit the mass market with Apple's launch of their very first smartphone. I still remember where I was when a friend of mine pulled this thing out of her pocket and I was like, what the hell is that? 2007. For some of you, you know, that was like mostly your whole lifetime. But for lots of us, we remember lots of years pre-smartphone. So 2007, first smartphone. And 2007, also the year that a company called Zoosk launched the world's first dating app. So 2007 marked the transition from a dating website to a dating app. 2009, Grindr was launched. 2012, Tinder was launched. And Tinder was the world's first swipe-based dating app. Okay, so 2012, like just over 10 years ago, was the very, very first time anybody swiped left or swiped right. And now, according to financesonline.com, there are more than 1,500 dating sites and dating apps that are available today. And data from the Pew Research Center shows that three in 10 Americans have used a dating app at some point in time. And when you look by age, those numbers are a little bit different. So half of 18 to 29-year-olds have used a dating app versus only about 16% of folks over 50. And adults who are LGBTQIA plus are about twice as likely to have used a dating app as adults who identify as heterosexual. 55% of folks who identify as queer have used a dating app versus only about 28% of folks who identify as straight. So here's our both and. Making use of an intermediary when you're looking for love is not new. And using a smartphone is radically different from using a matchmaker or putting a little want ad in your local newspaper. Why? Because dating apps create a sense of endless options, which creates the conditions for the spiking of anxiety and urgency and indecision. Why? Because dating apps create the possibility of having lots of open tabs at once, right? Managing lots and lots of possible potential connections. And that can fuel burnout and pessimism and cynicism. Why? 
because dating apps create the sense that my job as a dater is to sit here and swipe until I find the right person, which can further shift our attention away from the most important task of dating, which is becoming the right person. So dating apps turn the volume up on themes that have always been there. These are not themes. Indecision is not a new theme. Anxiety is certainly not a new theme. The idea of my job is to kind of hang back and see whether you check my boxes. Those are not new themes, but the volume gets turned up when it comes to dating via an online app. It's always been easy to bring what Dr. Bill Doherty calls a consumer mentality. It's always been easy to bring that mentality towards dating, meaning that people tend to look at a partner and think, what can you do for me? Versus looking at a potential partner and wondering what kind of a love story might the two of us be able to create together? And a large part of relational self-awareness is that work of becoming what we're seeking, of shifting from that mindset of what might you bring to my life towards a mindset of what kind of chemistry would we have together? What kind of a story would we create together? And I think dating apps have amplified that consumer mentality purely because the energy of technology tends to be a quite self-focused energy. When we're on our phones, we're often shopping for things for our lives or we're posting images about our lives. The energy of technology is an energy of me. And the energy of love is an energy of we. And that attitude, that kind of mismatch, is exemplified by the phrase that I find rather triggering, this person checks all my boxes, or I need to figure out if this person checks all my boxes. If you want to watch me really kind (laughs) of squirm in my seat, tell me that phrase, use that phrase while we're chatting. This person checks all my boxes. Why do I struggle with that phrase? Because it reinforces the idea that my job is to sit here with my clipboard and my checklist and just see if you check my boxes. And I think that that can be a defense against the very, very, very understandable anxiety and vulnerability of dating, right? The mere act of swiping on a dating app does fuel and reinforce that sense that your job is to hang back and just sift through the possibilities. There's a kind of invulnerability in swiping, but dating itself is inherently vulnerable. We can do nothing to omit, to banish the inherent vulnerability that is part of dating. All we can do is get braver, more robust, and more curious in the face of the vulnerability. That's potentially why, in part, you may be a little bit at risk of getting stuck in the swiping. Because if what you're doing is swiping, you are in some ways avoiding the vulnerability of dating, a defense against the vulnerability of opening up to somebody new, a defense against the vulnerability of meeting somebody new and having to chat in real time with somebody new. Swiping is lower stakes than opening up to a new person. And again, what's different today versus 10 years ago when Tinder launched the first swipe-based app is that the technology companies have played into this inherent human tendency of ours. Dating apps have become gamified. This is brand new. This, we are 10 years into dating app companies 
gamifying their product. The apps are now designed in a way that capitalizes on keeping you stuck, keeping you ruminative, keeping you dissatisfied. The more you focus on finding someone who checks all of your boxes, the more perfectionistic you're at risk of becoming. And the more perfectionistic you become, the more likely you are to rule someone out, potentially within moments of even meeting them. And the more likely you are to rule someone out, the more you're going to end up back on the app swiping some more. And the dating app wins. Now, do I want you to partner with someone that you find pleasing and attractive and engaging and elevating? Hell freaking yes. Do I want you to create a relationship in which you are invited and challenged to be your youest you? Hell freaking yes. Do I want you to hang in there with somebody who does not feel to you like a viable partner? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I want you to take responsibility for your experience on the dating app by viewing it for what it is. Your dating app is a tool. All technology is a tool. Your dating app is simply a means to an end. It's a way of getting from point A, which is the swipe, to point B, which is you sitting down across from this person over a beer or over a coffee or over an appetizer or you walking side by side with this person because that's where the potential takes off, right? You have to get away from behind your screen and you have to get into real flesh and blood interaction. Your dating app is neither a gift from the heavens designed to deliver you a soulmate, nor is your dating app there to provide commentary on your worth or your desirability. You are not your profile. All your profile is there to do is catch enough of someone's attention that you have the opportunity to engage with them in real life so that the two of you can figure out together the goodness of fit. That's it. You are not your profile. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you. Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. Just like you are projecting a lot of meaning onto somebody else's profile pics and your projections speak to your fears and your projections reflect how you've been socialized, the swipes that people are making on your profile say a lot about their fears and their projections and the ways in which they've been socialized. They don't know you. (laughs) They do not know you. Their swipe on you is not commentary 
on you. You are a unique expression of the divine, whether somebody swipes left on you or right on you. So that's the space we're trying to occupy here is neither idealizing dating apps as holding the promise of making dating easy and pain-free nor are we going to blame the dating apps for creating anxiety and vulnerability. The anxiety and vulnerability of dating existed long before you had Bumble on your phone. So the dating app is a tool, use it as such. If you've been following my work for a while, you know that my Instagram feed is sometimes my living laboratory. I love to post questions and stickers in my story in order to put a finger on the pulse of what's feeling alive and present for people. At least the people who follow my account, the people who like to get nerdy about love and relational self-awareness. So a few months ago, my team and I posed some questions about dating apps. And I want to share this data with you because I want this data, and I think that this data will normalize your experiences on the dating apps, whatever those experiences are. So this is data that comes from a few hundred people from around the world. So I asked, if you are currently in a relationship, did you meet your current partner through a dating app? 48% of people said yes. 52% of people said no. What this finding says to me is that a dating app may very well work for you. But don't for a minute kid yourself into thinking that you have to use a dating app. It's a choice to use or not use a dating app. Then, because I've heard a number of stories over the years about couples who met on a dating app, but who went on to agree that they would share a cover story about how they met, I decided to ask people who had met their current partner on a dating app. I asked them this question Do you feel any hesitation? sharing that you met your partner on a dating app. A full 52% of people said, no, uh uh-uh, no shame in my swiping game. (laughs) I'm happy and comfortable saying that I met my partner on a dating app. But that means that a full 48% of people reflected and conveyed that, yeah, They do feel some hesitation saying they met their partner on a dating app. And this number, frankly, surprised me a little bit because dating apps are so common. It's so normalized. But what it reminds me is that we are so sensitive to other people's judgment, aren't we? We cling so tightly to the notion that there are better and worse love stories. There are more valuable and less valuable, more stigmatized and less stigmatized ways to meet a partner. So almost half of people still carry some amount of self-consciousness or embarrassment or fear of judgment about the fact that they met their person through a dating app. I then asked, with whom are you most hesitant to share that you met your partner on a dating app? The overwhelming response was, my family. In fact, 53% of people said that they feel self-conscious letting their family members know that they met their person on an app. 15% said their friends, 2% said their therapist, and 30% said all of the above. I asked this question also. Has the prevalence of dating apps reduced opportunities to meet potential partners in real life? 57% of people said yes. 16% said no, and 27% said somewhat. So to me, the takeaways from all this data are, one, 
if you feel self-conscious about using dating apps, you're in good company. Two, if you turn to dating apps because it feels hard to meet people in real life, you're also in good company. Lots of people are reporting that they're finding it difficult to meet potential partners in real life. More on that in next week's episode. And three, at the same time, we all need to keep working together to celebrate all of the ways that love begins, all of the love stories. We do not need to make hierarchies of better and worse ways of meeting people. When we're talking about societal attitudes towards dating, we have to make sure that we talk about dating apps in a larger social context. So Match.com has been collecting data about dating for over a decade. And when I read this year's report, the 2022 dating report, there were two really important dating shifts that stood out to me. And I want to talk you through those two. The first thing that stood out to me is that, understandably, the overturning of Roe versus Wade is affecting people's dating lives. Two out of three single women reported that they will not date a partner with opposing views on reproductive justice, on abortion. Two out of three single women. And 80% of people who are dating reported that the overturning of Roe versus Wade has affected their sex lives. What's the takeaway here? Well, if you are a man who dates women or a person who cannot get pregnant, who dates people who can get pregnant, it is on you to be proactive about naming and clarifying your stance regarding reproductive justice. Put it on your profile. Bring it up really early in your interaction. I have heard far too many stories from straight women about them doing double and triple overtime, trying to figure out how are they going to bring up the topic of reproductive justice to the men they're trying to date because they know it's a deal breaker for them, but they worry that the men they're considering dating are going to see it as some kind of, you know, abstracted political statement. It's unfair to judge me based on my political beliefs. But as the 1960s feminists taught us, the personal is political and dating is about a lot of things. And one of those things is sexual intimacy. Therefore, dating is in part about what the heck we would do if there was an unintended pregnancy. So if you are a man who dates women, take that emotional labor off of her. She is likely tired, tired of having her bodily autonomy be the centerpiece of so much political discourse and tired of having to figure out how to get the information she needs from a potential partner without making it quote unquote awkward. Part of privilege is having the ability to have your politics and your love life feel like they are separate spheres. So I get it if it feels to you like I might be making a weird ask or a surprising ask, but trust me, your willingness to take the lead on stating where you stand is going to go a very, very long way. The second dating shift that stood out to me from this Match.com data is this increase in a collective consciousness around self-work, an increase or a shift towards you know, conscious dating or being a conscious dater. And 
you know I love this. I've been a therapist for many, many, many years, and I've been saying a lot lately that us therapists are finally the cool kids. It's really kind of fun. So I think that, you know, part of it is that I think part of it is social media. We have so much more relationship and mental health information at our fingertips. Part of it is all the work that people in mental health spaces and relationship education spaces have been doing for years to reduce the stigma around learning these skills and learning this information. And part of it is that I think a lot of people use the pandemic lockdown as an opportunity to work on themselves. They read, they journal, they did therapy, they listened to podcasts, and they're coming out of the pandemic with a commitment to creating healthy relationships, to refusing to languish in relationships that don't feel good, that don't feel curious, that don't feel founded in relational self-awareness, if you will. So this match research, in fact, found that 87% of single people said that it's important for both partners in a relationship to prioritize their mental health. I love that so much. And they found also that people are focusing less than ever on appearance and more than ever on cultivating a connection. The percentage of men and women who reported this year that they fell in love with someone that they were not initially attracted to is higher than any year that they've been tracking this data. In fact, attractiveness was not even one of the top five traits that people were seeking. What were the top five traits, you ask? I'm so glad you asked. I've got that right here. (laughs) It is one, someone they can trust and confide in. Two, someone who is comfortable communicating their wants and needs. Three, someone who is emotionally mature. Four, someone who can make them laugh. And five, someone who is comfortable with their own sexuality. Oh my Lord, here's to taking sexy back. (laughs) What a neat shift, right? What a neat shift away from, you know, I need them to be this height or this weight or have abs like this, or a booty like this, and a shift towards the soul, a shift towards really focusing on trying to discern the degree to which this person seems to have the raw material that it takes to create a healthy relationship. I am here for that. Okay, let's talk now about the strain of dating apps. Not to bring you down, but to validate some of the challenges, knowing full well that next week when we're together again, we're going to talk about 12 strategies that are designed to help you cope with that strain so that you, you know, get what you need. Like I said before, dating is inherently vulnerable. We're not going to get around that. You're opening yourself up to another person. That inevitably creates feelings of insecurity. Like, is this person drawn to me? Is this person, you know, finding me attractive? What are they thinking about me? And the vulnerability of feeling responsible and the kind of responsibility and self-trust that is required for you to ask yourself the question, to what degree am I drawn to them, right? So that like vulnerability arrow goes in both directions. Dating is vulnerable because you have only limited control over the outcome. And some of us have, uh, you know, a need for control that stems 
in part from a personality, perhaps in part from early experiences of trauma and overwhelm in which the way that we survive was creating control around us to manage some of the chaos within us. And so then to turn towards dating where you have only limited control over how it goes, right? You are only one half of the equation at most. That's inherently vulnerable. That requires a kind of resilience and self-soothing and regulation that is not easy. Dating is incredibly growth promoting. In fact, I think that is bottom line, the best approach is to view dating as an opportunity to learn more about yourself and to learn more about other people. But growth is vulnerable. Dating requires you to sit with uncertainty. Uncertainty can create anxious thoughts that fast forward you. Like, oh my gosh, what if this doesn't go well? What if the next day doesn't go well? What if I never find someone, right? That kind of fast forwarding, what if, what if, what if that creates anxiety. The uncertainty can also lead to depressive thoughts, like the depressive thoughts that arise when we look in the rear view mirror and we sort of ask like, how did we get here? Or why me? Or that dreadful thought of like, what did I do wrong that I am this age and single, this stage of life and single, right? The uncertainty and the frustration can fuel these like rear view mirror thoughts that can create feelings of shame, self-doubt, some depressive emotions. So that's why I want you to return again and again to mindfulness, to just focusing on this moment, this swipe, this communication, this date bringing your attention back to the present moment and validating for yourself, like hearing my voice in your head of saying, this is hard because it's hard. And by the way, the last few years, we have been living through, you know, a whole ass pandemic. And that pandemic has been a masterclass in uncertainty and a masterclass in decision fatigue. And dating can mirror some of those feelings, right? There's a collective trauma and dating, I think there's some disturbing or energetic parallels between the uncertainty and the decision fatigue of the pandemic and the uncertainty and the decision fatigue of dating. So that's why it's unsurprising that the Pew Research Group found recently that there are fewer men and fewer women than any other time who are looking for, who were looking for dates or a relationship in 2022. When they compared 2022 to 2019, the numbers had dropped. Fewer people were looking for love. 49% of people were looking for love in 2019, and only 42% were looking for love in 2022. That finding was paralleled in the Match.com data from this year, most ever. They had most ever respondents who reported that they were really not wanting to, really not interested in seeking a relationship. People are tired. So we're not going to blame dating apps for dating strain. We're also not going to expect dating apps to rescue us from dating strain. But we're going to validate that a lot of people feel that dating apps amplify dating strain. In fact, a Pew survey from 2020 found that 35% of dating app users leave the apps feeling more pessimistic about dating, and 25% say they feel more insecure after using the dating app. 
I mean, it's vulnerable to put images of yourself out there and to know that someone is looking at you and swiping on you. And reminder that I want you to remember to disentangle your self-worth from your dating profile. Your worth, your attractiveness are not tied to the response you're getting online. I know this is easier said than done, but I'm saying it out loud so that it can land inside of you and become a practice. So another strain for straight folks in particular is that gender role scripts dictate who is allowed to initiate contact, who's responsible for initiating contact. And that tendency for gender and initiation patterns to be so closely tied together, that exists out in the real world, but it also exists on dating apps. Men tend to report feeling fatigued by the responsibility of sending messages and initiating contact and sending so many more messages than they get responses. And women who date men tend to report feeling fatigued by fielding inbound requests from men, which is, by the way, the whole premise for why Bumble was created as an app, right? To create a context where women need to make the first move and to have that be a relief for you know, for people of, for straight folks of both genders. Pew Research Center found that roughly six in 10 men who've dated online in the past five years reported feeling like they did not get enough messages, but only 25% of women said the same thing. And women who date online are five times as likely as men to report that they felt like they got too many messages. So 30% of women complain about getting too many messages, where only 6% of men complain about getting too many messages. Similarly, because racism, sexism, homophobia exists in the real world, they also exist in online spaces, right? Those problems, those structural problems don't stop just because we're on our phones instead of in real life, which means that people who occupy one or more marginalized identities, women, people of color, people who are queer, those folks are at greater risk of having frightening or upsetting experiences on their dating apps. And the impact of those experiences can linger and the impact of those experiences can begin to feel quite cumulative, creating the conditions for, you know, burnout and cynicism and pessimism and withdrawal sometimes. You know, a full 37% of people who use dating apps reported that someone continued to contact them on a dating app after they said they were not interested in them. About 35% of people received a sexually explicit message or image that they did not ask for. About 28% of people were called an offensive name on a dating app. And about 10% of people report that they received a threat of physical harm on a dating app. And those rates are all higher for young women. A full 60% of women on dating apps from ages 18 to 34, 60% report that somebody on a dating app continued to contact them after they weren't expressed that they were not interested. And 57% report that they received an explicit, sexually explicit message or an image that they had not asked for. 
44% of women ages 18 to 34 report someone called them an offensive name. And 19% of young women on dating apps report that somebody has physically threatened them on a dating app. So this is real, right? The pain is real. The strain is real. The risk is real. The final dating app strain that I want to mention is ghosting. We can't do an episode on dating apps without mentioning ghosting, but we don't need to go into a lot of detail because we did an entire episode of Reimagining Love on the topic of ghosting. So check out episode 28 linked in the show notes where I talked about what causes ghosting, why we hate ghosting, how to avoid doing it, and then how to cope when it's done to you. And again, dating apps don't cause ghosting. Ghosting started long before dating apps, but because dating apps perpetuate contact that is high volume and low accountability and dating apps perpetuate connection that is high quantity and low quality, that means that people tend to not feel particularly beholden to each other. And because so much communication is mediated screen to screen rather than face to face, it's just quite easy to fade away. And the bottom line is that ending well, ending maturely, ending thoughtfully, that's a skill. So ghosting reflects one, a skill deficit, two, an empathy deficit, three, dating burnout, or some mix of all three of those factors. And being ghosted sucks because it sucks, not because you suck. I do think there is a collective consciousness that ghosting says nothing about the ghostee and everything about the ghoster. And one of the helpful side effects, frankly, of navigating the modern dating landscape is that you may find yourself developing the skill of learning how to not take other people's behavior personally and recognizing that people's behavior is by and large, a reflection of their degree of relational self-awareness. So the risks are real, the strain is real, and the potential benefits of using dating apps to search for connection, those benefits are also real. And we will pick up here next week. So thank you for joining me today for our episode of Reimagining Love, Why You're So Frustrated by Dating Apps. If you are dating, I hope this episode helped you feel seen and supported. And if someone in your world is dating, I hope this episode is going to help you be a stronger ally and a louder cheerleader for them. So make sure you join me next week for part two of our early dating series. We're going to pick up where we left off and I'm going to offer you 12 strategies for swiping with relational self-awareness. Strategies that are designed to support your emotional health and to help you create an awesome connection with someone. And then the following week, it will be part three, how to bring relational self-awareness to your first dates. Okay, see you next week. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Katie Pagich of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. 
If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love 